so this is Mimi, my sister. She's my younger <laughs> sister. Um, Contrary and, to what many people think. Yeah, and uh, um, and I guess maybe you can start by introducing yourself, like what you do. Oh yeah. So okay. So. I am an anthropologist by training. Uh, most of my work has been looking at what teenagers do on the internet and with games, but more and more it's been about um, understanding how you know kids' new media activity is related to their learning and then what educators can do um, and uh, how we can change sort of online education and make learning better for more kids. My day job is I'm a professor at the University of California, Irvine. And it's um, and so because well, it was it. I think I've talked about this uh, before. And last week, I guess I talked with Philip in one of our uh -huh. on Hangouts. But it, it's it's funny because you know, I think we were basically brought up with pretty similar advice from our parents. And I think our, our parents are pretty fair in terms of treating us with about the same amount of privilege. And so, mm -hmm. you know, on the sort of nature and nurture question is kind of interesting because you ended up doing well in school, getting straight A's, going to Harvard, Magda Cum Laude, going to Stanford and getting two PhDs. And I got kicked out of kindergarten and dropped out of college <laughs> you know, a bunch of times. And yeah. I wonder, you know, do you want to talk about sort of why you think that it's true because you—that's sort of your, your two pages are what anthropology and education, education right? Education. Yeah. So you study people like me, right? Yeah, yeah. And a lot of times, you know, one of my advisors, Ray McDermott, liked to say that anthropologists tend to study what we really don't understand. So, you know, I think I grew up with you having a really different learning style. Well, not just a learning style, but a different style of towards success, too, right? And learning mm -hmm. was a big part of it, but. Yeah, I mean, I think what was unique about our parents or it, how they ended up parenting us was they let us be ourselves, especially in terms of the learning style. And I think, you know, I have two kids now and I kind of look back on that and I think, wow, like they just let Joey have the highest absentee rate in his high school and drop out of college twice. And, you know, I think that's as a parent now, I realize that that was a pretty extraordinary thing. Like I was a more conventional learner. So, you know, I, I was a corporate learner. You know, I just got good grades and was like- It's called into, a corporate learner? Well, I call it, that's my word. So like my research now focuses on interest-driven learning, which is mm -hmm. what you were, but it's definitely not what I was. But I think that's part of the reason why I'm an anthropologist because I'm really curious about people who are different than me. And you were always the person who I was close, I've been closest to my entire life, but who's incredibly different in terms of your learning style and your social style. And you're an extrovert and I'm an introvert, but we're also really close. So I think a lot of, uh, my, I don't think I'm an extrovert, but <laughs> I'm more know, extrovert but than you. Yeah, well, we could have this debate, but in my book, if you're not an extrovert, then who is an extrovert? But you can disagree. No. Um, okay. And keep going. Um, but anyway, that's sort of a tangent. Uh, but yeah, the... Um, I think a lot of my research has really focused on understanding how people like you tick and why um, in the internet you kind of found your medium in mm -hmm. terms of learning. 
And I feel like, especially for more interest-driven and non-traditional learners, we have a really unique opportunity to support people like you. And I think you were super lucky because you had unusual parents and you were given access to a lot of kinds of resources that um, most kids actually don't have access to. So you survived, but the system crushes most kids like Mm -hmm. you. Like it just crushes kids like you and parents don't know how to parent kids like you. And, uh, but because I grew up with you, I feel like I'm probably a little bit more empathetic than a traditional corporate learner than, um, you know, somebody who doesn't understand or didn't grow up with somebody like you. But I mean, sorry, we'll get the video back in a second. Yeah. It's stalled out. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the questions I have, I mean, there's like a, it's not binary. Like we happen to be sort of extreme, mm-hmm. but like I think everybody has some level of interest-driven learning, right? I think so. Yeah, it's definitely not binary. Um, and yeah, I think you know, ideally, kids grow up experiencing a really wide variety of learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, we've developed um, as part of this work that I've been doing for the past twelve years or so. The um, that came out of the MacArthur Foundation's Digital Media and Learning Initiative. We've been developing this model called Connected Learning, which is just to say like all kids actually deserve to have that experience of learning something they really care about in a way that's supported by others, recognized by others, celebrated by others, and that's actually tied into opportunities. So I think Mm -hmm. a lot of kids have the experience of doing things that are interest-driven, and most kids have interests, whether that's like skateboarding or video games or whatever it is, but not all kids, and in fact, um, not enough kids have the experience of themselves doing something that's genuine, genuinely joyful uh, that helps them get ahead in life. And that's really the model of connected learning. And some kids enter connected learning by, um, you know, like you, you're mm-hmm. just like a motivated, interest driven learner. Uh, and then other kids enter connected learning. Uh, through that are more like my pathways like oh there's something in school Mm -hmm. I get introduced to something in school and I didn't really realize I had that interest and because I get rewarded for it in school I pursue that interest so kids can enter it in different ways and I think there is a gender dimension to it like boys tend to get rewarded more for Mm -hmm. the interest driven girls tend to get rewarded more for you know doing the corporate learning recap and everything yeah so the short recap was that we were just talking about how you know joey and i have really different learning styles and a lot of my research has ended up focusing on understanding how learners like joey learn but um and how the system how the educational system can better support interest-driven learners and i was describing the model of connected learning that has come out of the work that we've been doing for the past 12 years or so uh in MacArthur's Digital Media and Learning Initiative, which was is really an effort to say, how can we use new media? How can we use digital networks to support learning that's socially connected, that's interest-driven and tied to opportunity? And and, and there's was an article recently about this too, because there's a lot of debate about whether kids should be playing online and whether you should be reducing the number of hours they're online. And, yeah, yeah. and you have a point of view about that, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I recently blogged about this. And um, it's interesting, because it's definitely hit a nerve like the, 
You know, a lot of parents have probably heard of the concept screen time, which came out of the American Association of Pediatrics guidelines that like no no more than two hours a day, no screens for kids under two, the two by two rules.、Mm-hmm. And actually, last fall they rolled back a lot of that because they realized, you know, really belatedly that not all screens are created equally, and it's really more than quantity; it's about the、uh, quality of what、mm-hmm. kids are doing with screens that matters more. But I think it's done a ton of damage because the whole idea that the role of parents or good parenting is about、uh, monitoring screen time sets parents up to be like time cops and、mm-hmm. you know in a sort of negative relationship with、mm-hmm. kids and screens rather than engaging kids in you know the productive uses、mm-hmm. of、um, uh, digital media、mm-hmm. games and the internet and I think. You know, parents should spend their time and worry about like, oh, is my kid playing like really cool, mind-expanding games? Not whether they're on the computer,、mm-hmm. how many hours a day. And I mean, this this is sort of the the formal learning versus informal learning. But、mm-hmm. and I think a lot of kids. I mean, I remember you were doing some work on informal learning networks online and what you can learn and how do you because because we talk a lot at the media lab about learning about learning, right? And、mm-hmm. and it. You know, t- can you talk a little bit about how kids learn online and what kids learn online and how? How? Yeah. Yeah. So,、uh, you know, we ha- we're just、um, finishing up our book a book on this, but you know, a lot of my work has been studying just internet culture, and then it became clear to me at a certain point that internet and online communities had really interesting learning dynamics that was very different from how we learn in school, where there was a lot of peer to peer interaction, where You know, contra- it, learning is embedded in a set of activities that people genuinely are interested in, and where they're contributing to a community. And that's actually how people learn ninety percent, ninety nine percent of what we learn. Like we、mm-hmm. learn in the context of doing things that are relevant and meaningful, and we don't even really think about it as learning. And then there's a small subset of things that. Are basically not relevant to our everyday life that we have to learn in the classroom. So,、mm. you know, you can apply classroom learning to real life, but it's the kind of learning that you wouldn't learn on your own. You wouldn't learn through doing because it's not relevant, and、mm. that's what we've sequestered into classroom learning and elevated in a certain way. Now, what's interesting about the internet is you can actually build communities around. Not irrelevant learning, but learning that is not otherwise part of your everyday life. So,、mm-hmm. kids are developing communities around things like, you know, math, science, or like really nerdy topics, or niche, you know, creative communities and fandom. And suddenly, you have a space where every conceivable topic you can create communities and affinity networks and things that are, you know, tickling all those genuine motivations that people have. Like people feel motivated to learn when their knowledge is recognized. Other people,、mm-hmm. and not when it's just about impressing a teacher. That's not motivating for a lot of kids. But if it impresses your peers, it's motivating. So it's really like an interesting laboratory for understanding how you know learning can be embedded within this more peer-to-peer reputational economy. And you know, we've just finished a series of case studies around、um, fandom, where kids are learning how to write. You know, certain kinds of gaming communities where they're learning a lot of mathematical and problem-solving skills. A lot of communities around uh, creative uh, digital, you know, making type activities, and it really is amazing how. Much kids learn how much specialized knowledge kids are learning when they're doing it as part of 
having fun and affinity networks. So, mm-hmm. yeah. and and um, and you wrote a book. I think it was um, hanging out, ge- mm-hmm. messing around, geeking out. Was were you the author of the book, or was that a collaborative book? I don't remember. Uh, exactly. It was. Uh, I had many co-authors. Okay. I was the lead author, but but yeah. I mean, and, and I think that ties to your sort of hypothesis that. Learning is a social problem. Do you want to mm-hmm. sort of describe that a little bit? Yeah. So that book, like the book we just finished, which isn't out yet, is called Multiplayer Mode. And that's specifically a series of case studies of like niche affinity networks and learning. But the Hanging Out book, which, you know, our research, that was like research field work we were doing a decade ago when it was that first big wave of social media adoption by teens. So everybody was super freaked out. But that book was really not just looking at the niche geeky communities, but looking at um, everything from sort of uh, what back then was MySpace and I am just the social hanging out. That's the hangout part to the stuff that's sort of, you know, Googling and looking around and just trying to figure things out, which is the messing around. And then we also looked at the geeking out part, which was those niche affinity networks. Mm -hmm. So all of those are forms of learning, right? So like kids are learning, you know, how to interact with their peers and, you know, understanding how to navigate social media. Like it's all forms of learning. Um, and I think it's really important to recognize the whole range of learning that kids are doing mm-hmm. with new media. But our work uh, moving forward has tended to focus on the geeking out because mm-hmm. that's where kids are most likely to connect to sort of academic and career and civic mm-hmm. learning. And so we're trying to understand how to support those geeked out forms of learning uh, mm-hmm. in order to get kids to, you know, find their place in the world mm-hmm. in terms of becoming grown-ups who can who mm-hmm. have specialized knowledge and understand how to interact with communities. And I'm going to aggregate a few of these comments. I mean, I think, yeah. you know, one of the things is that, you know, you could just use the internet to do copy-paste, you know, and there's Karthik's also talking about philosophy and, and focus. And, you know, online you've got the MOOCs that mm-hmm. deliver skills and knowledge, you know, and, um, and a lot of kids are doing that in order to finish degrees where they have to take tests and mm-hmm. and there's you know i mean obviously there's a lot of energy going into trying to get those degrees so you get jobs it's a very mm-hmm. utilitarian mm-hmm. element of education right mm-hmm. and then there's sort of creative learning that we like mm-hmm. to talk about and and um and then and then you know karthik talks about the philosophy right and so there's sort of passion and things like that mm-hmm. and it, you know obviously you can use the internet just to search for and accumulate the knowledge and skills that you need mm-hmm. but it sounds like the community the geeking out part is actually about being excited about something because mm-hmm. it basically by definition it's interest driven learning which mm-hmm. is not doing it because you have to or because you're afraid not to but because you yeah. want to right so so explain to me sort of how what that how that passion yeah. works yeah. yeah so um you know one of the things we stress with connected learning is we're not saying that all learning has to be connected learning all the time so if you go online google connected learning you'll see we define it as the intersection between three spheres of learning, one which is about achievement, one which is about pure culture and belonging, and one which is about interests. So we're not saying that kids should only be in the interest sphere or only like be about social hangout with their friends or only be doing things for instrumental reasons, but connected learning is when all three of those things cross. Now, most of the learning that kids are doing are in one of those other spheres. So, you know, kids spend a lot more time just hang out with their friends for non-instrumental or learning goals than they do with connected learning. So you have to look at the overall ecosystem, but 
What we found is that connected learning is qualitatively different from all of those like other spheres of learning because it's when it brings together who you are, who you hang with, and what you're interested in, and helps kids find their place in the world. It helps them discover who they want to be. Um, it helps them think about their futures in ways that are really different from, you know, just getting through the calculus class mm -hmm. for the resume, or are really different from, you know, just hang out with your friends. But they not may they may not be they may be friends who you really enjoy and like to be around, but they may not share your interests or your aspirations for your careers. So the connected learning is kind of that bullseye. And when we find that kids have that experience, it's totally transformative. It's non-incremental learning. But we also recognize that that's not, you know, the majority of the learning that kids are going to be doing. Mm -hmm. and, and then what about, you know, Karthik talks about philosophy, right? So mm -hmm. you know, is that... I mean, how does how does that fit in? I mean, it ties, I guess, to what you want to be and what you want to do. But there's like values and ethics, and I, and it mm -hmm. feels like that's something that good parents should do, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and but I mean, in these emergent peer groups and stuff like that, do you do you see that as well as a as an important scaffolding? for Yeah, learning? I mean, I think that's super important, and one of the reasons why, like I was ranting about screen time earlier, but it's actually a really big problem that grownups aren't engaged more in young people's online activities and gaming and affinity networks because. You know, this is why we have internet trolls and, you know, negative behavior online mm -hmm. is because, you know, a lot of grownups and teachers role has been to say, like, no, online social all gaming is kind of a distraction from learning. It's not something that we actively try to engage in and shape. So there's sort of this feral quality to a lot of these networks. Now, the ones we've studied for the book that's coming out is... We specifically targeted really high-functioning, learning-oriented, positive values and civically engaged communities, and they do exist. But you know, just like the recent political, you know, climate has shown us, like it's not like those things just happen. Like you actually have to work on it. You have to engage in it. Like we've started. Um, I have a startup that's delivering online learning opportunities in Minecraft called Connected Camps, which comes from Connected Learning. But where we realize that Minecraft, you know, there's these servers with millions and millions of kids playing, um, not just kids, humans playing. And, you know, some of them are really awesome and are animated by positive values, but a lot of them aren't. And a lot of kids are having really sort of bad negative experiences or learning how to become griefers and trolls or are getting griefed and trolled themselves um, because there aren't a lot of grown-ups, parents, teachers who are in there really understanding how these communities work and trying to support them. So, you know, we've Figured out, we figured that we were offering a ton of value to families if we could run safe, moderated Minecraft servers that are going to start taking the opportunities that Minecraft has for learning coding, engineering, and all of that. And, you know, that's sort of the essence of a lot of our educational strategy around connected learning is we meet kids where they are and what they're already interested in. And then we try to guide them to positive digital citizenship, values, learning, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And, the, and then there's a thing, um, you know, what's the role of instructors um, in this community driven learning? And maybe you could maybe talk about it in the context of kinetic camps, because I, I was yeah. really impressed with that, that one 
place I went to when the counselors were reporting out? Maybe you can describe yeah, that yeah, process. Yeah, yeah, So, like, the way that we train our instructors in connected camps is sort of, it's not the only way to do it, but it's kind of instructive of how connected learning is different from traditional learning and how you might approach it is that instead of us, the educators and grown-ups, teaching the kids, what we do is we recruit uh, teenage Minecraft enthusiasts, so young people who are genuinely passionate and part of the broader ecosystem of Minecraft, keeping up with every piece of geekery around Minecraft. And then we teach them how to teach the younger ones. So it retains sort of the culture and the enthusiasm of an interest-driven community, but we're um, creating an opportunity for younger kids to be influenced by big brothers and big sisters who they're so excited, right? Mm -hmm. There's nothing more motivating for a 10-year-old than to be working with a super cool 14-year-old. But then we, we're training the teenagers to want to mentor and be mm -hmm. good digital citizens. So that's sort of one instructor, instructional model and, that and works. And somebody's yeah. asking Minecraft, how come? Maybe you can describe oh, why yeah. Minecraft is a learning environment. Yeah, yeah. So for those people who aren't that familiar with Minecraft, it's kind of like Legos in a multiplayer virtual world. So it's a lot about just open-ended creative. I mean, there is gameplay too, like survival mode or player versus player, but there are modes of Minecraft that you know enable kids to build epic structures, to engineer things, to learn how to code, and also just to learn how to emergent sort of gameplay and citizenship so you can create your community norms you can like some of our campers like they created a whole sort of village where people had to apply for jobs and they elected officials so there's a lot of sort of social engineering and citizenship type learning that can happen in minecraft too um, but because it's an open-ended environment like you know it's not like just because your kid is playing minecraft they're necessarily mm -hmm. like learning good habits or connecting with awesome people that it's really sort of a wild you know the inner internet wilds out there uh, so a lot of teachers are taking minecraft and designing science and math and all sorts of mm -hmm. curriculum in minecraft uh, so it's just sort of an open-ended mm -hmm. environment and it's, you know, I've been studying learning games for 20 years now and I actually never thought that there would be sort of a open-ended construction-oriented game that would be both hugely popular among kids and adults. So Minecraft, you know, not only is it the most played game of all time, it's a game that actually can be used for creative learning, mm -hmm. and it's something that crosses uh, home, school, and kid and, culture. And how old are your counselors? They're like 10, 15, something um, like that? Well, the campers are 8 to 12, 12 and then and the counselors, counselors are, are sort of high school and college okay. age. Because I remember yeah. hearing them like talk about how they designed this learning experience and what yeah. they did about this problem. And so it seemed like a cross between like a camp counselor, yeah. uh, a buddy, and, you know, sort of somebody you might be uh, hanging out with in sort of a hackerspace, right? And, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and so, I mean, I think it's, it, they were talking about instructors. I mean, so they have a ton of domain expertise, yeah. but it's also like, I feel like it's kind of like when in, I teach scuba diving, but your yeah. first job as a scuba diver exactly, is, is yeah. like you, you become a dive master. So you're suddenly not doing that much more, but you're now responsible for everybody else's stuff. And mm -hmm. you take it very seriously because you're being paid, right? And, mm -hmm. and I, it felt like these kids had gone from just sort of playing Minecraft and being excited by it to mm -hmm. this whole other level, which they felt responsible for the learning outcomes of these kids. Um, yeah, yeah. 
And I think a lot of what we're doing is modeled on what's been successful in traditional summer camps. So like usually it's like kids go to summer camp and once they, if they get really serious about it in their teenage years, they, they become counselors in training. And then eventually it's like just like the pathway to become mm-hmm. a dive instructor. So it's an interest driven specialties. This is kind of a common pathway. Yeah. It's just not the pathway we use in formal education. Mm-hmm. Well, no, the, and it's it's interesting because even in World of Warcraft, you know, I had like this eight-year-old kid who um, we made into a team leader, and eventually mm-hmm. he had a, he was a raid leader. I think he was like still probably like ten or under mm-hmm. when he was running these large, you know, dozens of people raids, and he was in charge of everybody. And you could mm-hmm. see him sort of stepping up to mm-hmm. um, the uh, the position. And I remember when he was at PC Forum. Um, uh, uh, his name's Joe. He's Elliot's um, kid, and and somebody said, well, "Why do you like Minecraft so much?" And he said, "Well, because they don't treat me like a kid, you know." And I think <laughs> yeah. what's interesting is when you give opportunity to kids to be teachers or to be counselors, um, they they do step up and become really responsible. And what was neat for me was also like you think of your first paycheck as like the paper route was sort mm-hmm. of the the old traditional way, mm-hmm. but like you know. Teaching somebody is is and and yeah. you know I think is that, is that relatively that's like you said it's not in the formal educational system right and but but I suppose in like hobbies and sports you, yeah. you have it's that right it's a very common kind of apprenticeship trade model that we see in a lot of sectors um, especially in areas where people are giving back immediately or but sports and hobbies it's a common pathway. Um, but yeah, so I think we're taking a lot from those, you know, what works in has worked historically. Uh, we're also adding a new component, which I think is unique to the sort of new internet gig economy space where, you know, I've always liked to say that our problem with education isn't a capacity problem, it's a matchmaking problem. Mm-hmm. So I've also been learning a lot from matchmaking pro- uh, platforms and two-sided platforms. Mm-hmm. So what we have is, we have our network of families on one side and then we have our network of counselors on the other side. And it's, you know, but it's a gig economy where we're trying not to exploit our workers. We're actually trying to develop them. Mm-hmm. So we've been really successful at recruiting um, counselors from, you know, really diverse schools. So mm-hmm. we are we have counselors from the USC so, game design and, program. And, and but, there's, there's a comment about yeah. equity as well. And yeah. You wanna, and we talked about that a little bit in this context. I mean, do yeah. You- so this is one of the ways we're addressing equity. We've also been very intentional about recruiting from, uh, you know, high schools that are tech oriented, but serving low income kids because there's a gap in the pipeline between, you know, when kids are learning tech skills and the formal uh, pro- education and more and more dollars are going into kids learning how to code and stuff within low-income communities. But from there to getting their first job is a really big leap for a lot of these kids. So what we're doing is we're giving, we're putting all of these counselors from like all kinds of backgrounds in the same network. They're totally equal because they're all Minecraft experts. So you really, like there's no status differential based on class within our counselor community. But for most of our kids, um, they it's their very first job. Mm-hmm. And they often, you know, we're still just only in our third year, so it's early, but 
you know, we're finding that the kids not only are they getting their first experiences in a tech career,、mm -hmm. but a lot of them also become motivated to become.、Mm -hmm. um, Educators,、mm -hmm. based on their experience, either formally or informally. So it's also this really because kids are teaching online in this sort of flexible way.、Uh, the you know lower income kids who often have real constraints on their schedule and mobility, it actually works for them、mm -hmm. to get their first jobs、mm -hmm. with us. Where you know unlike the privileged kids, they don't they often don't. Have the ability to just like take regular internships that are nine to five, and they don't have the same connections that the privileged kids have. So that workforce development part of our model is actually something I'm really, really proud of.、Hmm. But but they do need to be privileged enough to have access to a computer to learn Minecraft. Yeah, no, anything, absolutely.、Right? Although what was really interesting in our first year, because we were recruiting from you know in our pilot year, we recruited from sort of our local.、Uh, Tech school in LA that serves like overwhelmingly low-income kids, and we were really concerned about their ability to access and、um, do this from home. We actually provided a space at USC so that they could connect, and we went through a lot of work to remove that technical and economic barrier. And it turns out none of them needed it. So,、mm -hmm. I mean, I do think that there's. There's drop-offs at so many points. Like by the time kids get to a school like Fauche Tech, which、mm -hmm. is the school we recruited from, they've already invested in、mm -hmm. their kids' education and their technology、mm -hmm. and so on. And obviously, we're losing a lot of kids earlier in that pipeline,、mm -hmm. but we're addressing a slightly later point in the、mm -hmm. pipeline, which isn't the whole problem, but it's、mm -hmm. a significant part of the problem. And I, I just th thought of this. I mean, so. Tedder is saying, sort of, you know, the evolution of、um, education and learning in informal systems will maybe outpace formal education, which I think is probably true.、Mm -hmm. And one interesting thing that I remember when I was working at ECD and we were working on the first electric vehicle, the EV1 battery, and we couldn't get it through because the regulators resisted.、Mm -hmm. But when the Japanese Released their cars. They marketed it directly to the people, and everybody wanted one. And once everybody wanted one, the regulations didn't really matter. It just became a thing, you know. And it feels like to me, and this is I'd like because you've been working in this longer than I have. It feels like yes, the educational system seems to resist all attempts to try to fix it. I mean,、mm -hmm. even you know whether you're talking about higher ed or K through twelve. But on the other hand, I feel like the parents aren't pushing. That hard either because they don't know, right? They're they're like they're not we're not experts, right?、Mm -hmm. We just want to find the best school, you know. But it feels like if you were to do the sort of slightly more market driven approach, market's not the right word, but sort of populist approach,、mm -hmm. which would be if you could create informal learning experiences like、um, your connected camps. Because I remember one of the dads that I talked to was like, I never knew how to connect to my kid, and through connected camps, I've learned this whole new way of learning, and and they sort of like their eyes opened up to peer learning. And if they experience really interesting learning systems, like、yeah. this is sort of a connected learning thing, maybe the parents could then suddenly say, you know, this is what we want. We want sort of Montessori-like, project-oriented,、mm -hmm. non-age delimited, delineated classes, and we won't stand for this educational system anymore. Do you think that that? I mean, I guess it can't be only that, but、yeah. do you think that's a necessary thing that we don't have right now? And do you think the informal learning might might tip the parents in that direction? Well, it's sort of. I've been kind of waiting for that tipping point because a lot of progressive schools already embrace this approach. So it's、um, sort of progressive learning, you know, interest-driven learning, creative learning, has been a reality for privileged families、mm -hmm. for quite some time.、Mm -hmm. But the 
So it's not as if parents don't actually recognize and believe, I, not, not in digital, like mm -hmm. digital is new, but just like hands-on learning, yeah. make the maker movement is a really good example of this. But the problem right now is that the top-down pressures are too intense for parents to abandon the traditional pipeline. I see. So, so that would go from the job ingest. And Everywhere. Yeah. Like our institutions of higher education are to blame. And, and it ends up, is it on the test? Exactly. And yeah. you really, as a parent, like I have, you know, two kids who, one who just finished her college application. And even though, like, I'm a parent who's obviously super invested in these other forms of learning, I, the reality is that if you don't, you know, finish college and do other things, you're, you are going to have a tougher time. And yep. our kids are actually in this, like, incredibly difficult choke point where it's both and because the world demands that they do connected learning. Because that's the kind of learning that will help them actually survive as real humans, if, especially if they want to do tech and other kinds of careers. But the system still demands that they do a bunch of learning that's completely irrelevant to their ability to thrive in mm -hmm. a digital world. And so we're driving our kids crazy right so, now. So, so if, you're, if we're trying to get to the source of all this, then yeah. it, it's the people who are hiring and the way that they hire, right? Because that that's is one the, big factor. It's pretty yeah. big, right? So yeah. Is it something that like Reed Hoffman and LinkedIn can fix? I mean, who? How do we yeah. address yeah. that? Because because it, there was this New York Times article. I think it was last year, and it was somebody I think from Google HR saying that um, they did an assessment of so it's like I think they were just doing, taking grades and how well these people performed after they got to Google, and they showed no correlation, right? Mm -hmm. So the ability to do schoolwork doesn't really matter. But then when they were challenged, well, well how have you changed? what you do and it's nothing because we can't think of a better way. And this gets back to testing and measurement. And I think one of the problems when we talk about passion and things like that is if you can't measure it, it's really hard to build a process around it. And I think one of the problems with the job system that mm -hmm. we have is whether, you know, when you have to hire a thousand people in a year, you've got to create some sort of process that's fair and mechanical. And then it turns into a measurement problem, right? And I mean, I don't know if you've thought about how, how do you well, deal with that. Well, the way that people are defaulting mm -hmm. is they use social capital as a measure in mm -hmm. the absence of formal measures. So like in tech or a lot of creative fields, uh, you know, it's sort of who you know or like who you've worked with, um, who you're connected with that ends up being a proxy for other, for the formal pathway, not yeah. really. And the problem with that is it's incredibly unfair because mm -hmm. the accident of birth ends up determining your opportunity. Like it's just an incredibly unfair way. And that's why you're seeing declining diversity in like Hollywood and in Silicon Valley, despite the fact that people aren't like racist and sexist but explicitly. But our networks are racist and sexist. And, but, but, you, yeah. but your argument also in the in your earlier work was that not only is it for the jobs, it's for learning, right? The reason yeah. why you have all these white boys that know computer science is the hanging out part. That's right. right. When in, when the learning is informal, social and cultural factors become really salient. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of this double-edged sword, like that I learned. You know, early in my career, it was all like, oh, this kind of nerd peer-to-peer -peer learning is really awesome. Like, kids are engaged. They're, like, just amazing. And then, you know, I increasingly started to realize that there was this flip side, which is when learning is dependent on you feeling bonded, feeling a sense of belonging, a mm -hmm. sense of social connection. That means if you don't fit into that whole cultural package, yeah. 
It's very hard to break in. And, 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 and that ties a whole bunch of things like the Kelly Brothers book on creative confidence and all, mm-hmm. all of these stories about how, you know, I mean, just fear of failure knocks yeah. you out of learning mode, right? And, yeah. and the mindset of, of confidence versus yeah. a mindset of fear, right? And, 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 and that's so social. And, and I guess that ties a little bit to what Karthik was saying, asking earlier about the philosoph- philosophical framework, right? So that's what was neat about like Montessori schools. I mean, they're not new, but they have this wonderful mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, supportive in- environment. And, and, I, and is, so why, why didn't Montessori scale? I mean, why didn't we end up with a whole bunch of, is it, do you think it's still the, the, the ingest of, of the jobs or do you think that it doesn't scale or why, why don't we have Montessori? Well, I think it's, it's a whole combination of things. So there is a lot of, um, you know, just the, the, the need for certain forms of measurement, sort of top-down policy kinds of things, sort of our cultural commitment to certain forms of, you know, historical knowledge. But, you know, there is a root cause which is very difficult to break within the formal educational system is that like schools are designed to teach kids things like that is a purpose of school but schools we've we've bundled assessment sorting and instruction into the same institutions and so schools have to sort kids rank kids pick the winners and losers it's actually part of what they're asked to do and within that environment a school needs to come up with ways to fail kids yeah to be to be blind like you you don't it's just and teachers hate it it's not like teachers are trying to fail kids it's like the system of grading of sorting of selectivity in a way i think some of the people that i've talked to in elite schools argue that maybe the primary reason why we have such great students is because we attract great students Exactly. It's just like, and so we're both in, I mean, you're in a more elite institution than I am, but we're both in highly selective schools. And if you, if our purpose was really to educate kids, we would pick the least prepared kids, right? Mm -hmm. But if our purpose is to pick the winners and create status differentials, that's why we have mm-hmm. selective schools. That is one of the big purposes of selective schools. And it is a social function, mm-hmm. which is exactly why employers like to recruit from selective schools is because people actually think that purpose of education is important. Mm-hmm. Now, that's why the informal system is for connected learning well, often but, a better but, but, place but to if, work. But if, if all you did was select great students, you would still be providing great students. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, Even that's if- right. You could not do anything. So you could potentially unbundle the selection and credentialing from the instruction. The, yeah. You could unbundle and, those and, things. And in yeah. fact, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a cynical way of looking at it, but if you looked at schools just as selection systems that provided no education, yeah. you would still hire from the best schools because you would assume that they were the most competitive, right? I mean, this is sort of well, being very cynical, like, right? Yeah, I mean, coming from Japan, it's a bit of what happens there. And I think the U.S. is kind of skittering over to that system where you know the high school years are really intense because they're um, preparing for college admissions and so most kids get weeded out there and once you're in college they don't really Mm -hmm. study for four years like there's not really the expectation that you're going to learn much but once you get into an elite school you're guaranteed Mm -hmm. your next step in life right so so that that's kind of i mean we're saying taboo yeah it's, it's not taboo people talk about it a lot but it's and it's 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 people people 
who are in the elite schools, I don't think like to think about it that way. But 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 it is. I think to your point, I, I think if you're really really interested in learning and education, I think you tend to be focused not on the elite schools, but on you know either yeah, people who are colleges, community colleges community or colleges, or and, yeah. and then and then, and, then, and then there's two elements. I think there's the vocational, which is more around equity and fairness and, mm-hmm. and, and social justice. And then there's the other, which is sort of creative learning, right? So you've got schools like Olin in mm-hmm. the School of Engineering here and, and other places where it's really more about creating creative environments where people are allowed to express mm-hmm. rather than trying to make sure that they've got every skill they need. Um, and and, and in the every skill they need thing is sort of interesting. It's sort of in between because you're sort of preparing somebody for some mythical credential that well not myth- yeah. a credential that gives you some mythical ability to do some job yeah. right and it's sort of vocational and sort of creative but the but the purely creative learning part i mean i i think it, it's interesting because it does go all the way back to i do think it goes back to the parents and to the kids i mean one of the hard our, our degree at media lab is called media arts and sciences which is a non-vocational sounding degree so if you're going to be the breadwinner of your home and you have poor parents and you want to pay off your student loans, you're much more likely to get a degree that sounds like it's attached to a job description yeah. than something like media arts and sciences where you're, you, yeah, where you would right. be dependent yeah. on your social network to get your job, you, you, would, you would imagine, yeah. right? Yeah. And I mean, just to like, you know, a bit in defense of our big research universities is that there is another function, which is knowledge production, yes, yes, that's which right. is really important. And I think part of the challenge of our big research universities is there's the knowledge production, which totally makes sense that we're selective because we want to produce the best science, mm-hmm. the best arts, and so on. There's the sorting and credentialing, and then there's the educational mission. And we're really being challenged to integrate those things. Like, it was sort of a historical accident that those things got lumped together. Mm-hmm. But there's not. it's not really accidental that there's often a conflict between the educational and the research mission mm-hmm. of a university. Mm-hmm. Like, that's something that's talked mm-hmm. about all the time. And I won't name names, but I do think the Americans do it better than most countries where mm-hmm. you can really get away with literally no added value but just sorting. Whereas I think in the U.S. there's some competition. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I know we, we may not be fast enough sometimes, but at MIT we do think and talk a lot about how do we improve our are are learning, you know, but but it's hard because it's a big it's a, creaky it's old a system, right? and there are genuine conflicts of values and interests within the system. So, you know, it's not it's not easy to just say, oh, okay, let's make MIT admissions mm-hmm. a lottery. Like these things are interconnected oh, in some well, you know important that ways. Joke. Yeah. Oh, there's a there's an admissions officer that has a stack of thousands of applications and the provost comes and says why the long face and the admissions officer says well i have all these things to read and the provost grabs all of them and leaves a few dumps them in the trash and says we don't want the unlucky ones (laughs) 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 but but, i mean it's it's i mean i I, yeah i don't think i would have gotten into my favorite schools just because i didn't score very well but 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 it is interesting to think about you know what 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 are the category of people who don't get to those elite schools? Mm-hmm. What options do they have? And and the good news is that all the online resources that we have, whether they're communities or your connected camps or or online you know mm-hmm. um, courses, if you have the social network and if you have the interest, you can much better 
make your way through the learning once you're like you had a, you have an example right. with if like you your your, your surfer network yeah. right if you learn how to learn then you have the capacity i mean in a way the revolution has already happened at mm -hmm. the learner level because right. they're sort of piecing together so like i'll give an example of one of my connected learners who was a student of mine he actually was you know an interest-driven learner doing all this stuff and gaming on the side and then, you know, we met him and he eventually ended up like working for us and working for Connected Camps. But like he was getting a degree in a totally other specialty that wasn't really helping him vocationally. And then he just decided to take online courses in web development and he just sort of picked up skills. Like it's like, OK, I had a great time in university. I had a great social you know, scene, I got to do my interest driven learning. Um, I learned, you know, how to think critically and a lot of other sort of higher order skills. But then when he needed the vocational stuff to get a job, like he could just take online courses, like mm -hmm. he didn't have to go to a vocational school anymore. Mm -hmm. So there, I think young people are especially because, you know, those kids who graduated around the um, time of the big recession, they had to figure out ways, like they were not actually getting marketable mm. skills, the elite kids. Mm. And, but it, in a way, it matters so much mm. less because they can so, so find Mary it. So Mary saying, if you have a social network, it's such a big if. So, yeah, so how, it's a huge It is yeah. huge, right? Yeah, and and huge. I mean, so because in the worst case scenario where, you know, Shaka, who's one of our director's mm -hmm. fellows, you know, he came from a neighborhood where every male in his family had been shot and every male in his city block had been to prison. Mm -hmm. And, you know, or where I was growing up in South side of Chicago, I think only 10% of people ever saw somebody actually going to work while they were growing up, you know? Mm -hmm. And so both the social network, but also the models, the role modeling's not there, right? And I, I guess, I mean, that's a, maybe that you, you can't solve that right away, but there, what, oh, but what, we have to solve that. I mean, to, that's right? actually, you know, for my research moving forward, you know, I've been working with some colleagues like Nicole Pinkard and, you know, folks who are really have understood exactly the conditions under which young people who aren't growing up in these creative class families are living or like, um, uh, Craig Watkins did a study in Austin, which is like, you know, similar to Silicon Valley and having this um, industry, creative industry. And he did a study of, you know, a low income high school in Austin that was teaching kids like digital filmmaking and like really sort of teaching them the skills they needed to become creative professionals. But then after the kids graduated from high school, the only people they know work in retail. Mm -hmm. So they've sort of been held, um, put down this garden path, developed these ambitions and the skills. They actually know how to do this stuff, but they have no pathway to opportunity because the way that people get jobs in the creative economy is through these informal networks. And so that was just, very sobering because all of the educators are, you know, they really are doing these with the best mm -hmm. intentions and providing important aspects of the ecosystem. But it's really impressed on us the fact that you can't just rely on the formal system. You can't just rely on skills and training. You really have to look at culture and social capital as part of what education has to deliver. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's why with Connected Camps too, you know, we focus on relationship building as mm -hmm. the outcome. So it's not just like our counselors show up 
and they do their job and they learn their skills and they leave. Like we have gaming nights, they're always connected on Slack. They help each other out、mm-hmm. and we help them go on to their next thing. And that's sort of, you know, network building, building diverse coalitions. Like part of the work we've been doing with the DML initiative too, like has been. Uh, building these hive networks, which are just networks of youth programs within a particular city. So they're aware of each other and are able to connect kids across different programs. So we don't usually think of the job of educators as brokering connections and building、mm-hmm. social capital, but we're trying to, you know, in an era where information、mm-hmm. and instruction is totally free and ubiquitous, the Role of education be, should be shifting to relationship building. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's a really big mind shift for educators, but good educators are already doing that. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing is、yeah. it's like good educators historically have always done、They've、a lot of this stuff、that. despite、yeah. the fact that they're not rewarded for it or not measured、right. for it. And, and I think the key is how do we nurture that? How do we take that to the next step? And the digital is really one of the big hurdles, right? Because it's a tool that not everybody's comfortable with, but the kids、mm-hmm. are all going to be using, right? So, yeah, yeah. so we're going to wrap up soon, but give me your, your, your,、um, your、uh, prediction. I mean, how, are you optimistic? How do you think? I mean, if you, what are the scenarios that you think might be possible things on how we play out in the future of education? Also, how、yeah. this informal learning goes? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm sort of pessimistic in the short term, but optimistic in the long term. Like, I think the, to reach that tipping point where People are actually trying to build a capacity building alternative educational model where it's going to take a lot of coalition building that、mm-hmm. doesn't exist yet between the employers, between higher education. Families need to go through a culture shift. Like there's so many pieces. I think eventually it's going to happen because the system isn't going to be delivering the outputs that are going to、mm-hmm. work socially.、Mm-hmm. But I do think that, you know, simply saying, oh, education is going to be disrupted、mm-hmm. because of the technology, that's like warning, warning, warning. Like that is not a productive way to go because the technology is definitely not going to drive the change.、Mm-hmm. Like it has to be really nitty gritty coalition building between people in industry, education,、uh, research. and... That's where, like, we've been trying to build what we're calling the Connect and Learning Alliance because it has to bring together informal, formal, in home, industry, higher ed. Like, it really has to be an everybody issue.、Yeah. Sounds like a lot of work. Yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, networking. It's about bridging social capital. Like, we、yeah. have to eat our own dog food. Like, we have to reach across the aisle. So, it's, it's a very, it's not a, Process that anybody is going to be in control of. And I think one of the problems I've had with、um, every sector, but you know, I think tech has the potential to be sort of the disruptor. So that's why I sometimes focus on the tech rhetoric is that you know, it, it can't be tech on its own. It can't be like, oh, MOOCs are going to change higher education. You actually Have to have the social scientists and the educators and everybody else at the table in order for the tech to have not only a disruptive role, but one that is equity oriented and a lot of other things. So I think,、um, you know, it's really a plea to be thoughtful about coalition building, to be humble about what any one sector can do if we really want to make a change. Cool. Thanks, Amy. Thanks. <laughs>